So at Camp Nathaniel, where I spent the vast majority of my boyhood and into high school and college, every morning at 6.30 a.m. in the gazebo down by the lake, there was morning devotions. Morning devotions were one of those formative routines that I learned at summer camp. And here's how it worked. All of the cabin leaders and all of the staff would come down to the gazebo. Obviously, the assistant cabin leaders were still with the kids in their cabins. We would sing a song. Somebody would read from God's word. We'd pray together. And that's how we always started our day. Well, one morning, one of the other staff members, a guy named Mark, He'd been out of town for a few days, and he had just come back to camp, and he got there early in the morning so that he could get back and join us for Devos. And so he walks up to the gazebo, and what he sees is what you would see every morning. A bunch of guys, it was an all-guys camp, sitting around the table, Bibles in hand, and he thought to himself, great, I'm about to join morning Devos. What he didn't know was that the night before, there was a group of counselors. And these counselors had been in a sort of prank war with a couple of staff members. And the night before, the counselors had decided to escalate that prank war, and they had stepped over the line. See, they decided that they were going to get a smoke bomb, light it, and at 2 a.m., throw it into the staff cabin. Needless to say, when I found out about this and I came to understand the fire hazard that they had just brought upon this camp, I wasn't very um, happy. And so, back to the gazebo. Mark has his Bible open. He's preparing his heart to begin the day in scripture and prayer. And I stand up, and Mark hears me say, would all of the counselors who had anything to do last night with a smoke bomb being thrown into the staff cabin, please stand up. And four counselors, four of the senior counselors, nonetheless, they all stood up from their seats, eyes fixed on the ground. I think about, well, and and at that point I obviously um, gave some comments about things like decision-making and responsibility and what it means to be in a place of authority as a counselor, setting an example to kids. It was a very, very pleasant conversation. I'm sure all of the counselors loved it. But I was thinking about Mark's experience in that moment, right? Mark shows up, and he sits down with his Bible, and he's expecting song, Bible, and prayer. But instead, I stand up, And it turns into somebody's done something wrong and we need to talk about it. For Mark, what he saw with his eyes in the gazebo that morning did not match what was actually going on. Have you ever had an experience like Mark had that morning? Have you ever had an experience, maybe in a meeting, maybe in a conversation, maybe in some complicated relationship? Have you ever had an experience where what you see doesn't match what's really going on. You find out that, in fact, something different, often bigger and deeper, is going on in the world around you. If you've ever had it, then you know what Mark experienced that morning, that sometimes in life, 
There is more going on than we can see at first glance. Or as the Transformers so famously said, there is more than meets the eye. Think about that for a second. Call to mind an experience that you've had like this. Call to mind a time in your life when you saw something with your eyes and you thought you understood it, but then you later realized that something different, maybe bigger, maybe deeper, maybe broader, was actually going on. Remember what it's like to have that experience when you discover, oh, there's more than meets the eye in this moment today. I want you to remember that because I want that experience to be sort of a backdrop as we dive into God's word today. We're going to be in the, God, in the book of Acts as we have been, chapter 12, verses 1 through 24. And I think what we're going to discover is just like we know broadly in life that it's true that sometimes there's more going on than we can see at first glance, we're going to hear from Acts chapter 12 today about a God who helps us understand our life by understanding there's more going on than we can see. We're in a sermon series. The sermon series is called One, and we're studying through the book of Acts. And the reason we're calling it One is because the book of Acts talks about the one God who establishes one church. And this church, which belongs to God, he gives one mission. And that one mission becomes the one focus of every life of every person committed to following Christ. And we've been hearing about how the church, having received this mission from Jesus, a mission to make disciples by going into the whole world, by baptizing people when they repent of their sins and are empowered by the Holy Spirit, and by teaching people everything Jesus taught his disciples. And in fact, the very book of Acts is the way that one of Jesus' disciples, a man named Luke, is carrying out that mission. Luke is trying to set out from the birth of Jesus to the birth, through the birth of the church, Luke is trying to set out a clear and well-researched and accurate record of everything Jesus taught when he was on earth. And the church was formed, and the church grew, and the church lived empowered by the Holy Spirit and devoted to the core practices of the church. They were devoted to scripture, to community, to generosity, and to prayer. And that devotion and power is what got them through conflict when it came up internally within the church. And that devotion and power is what's getting through the opposition that they're experiencing from outside the church. In fact, the opposition is getting pretty great. One of the key leaders of the church, a man named Stephen, has just been executed by the Roman Empire. Many people are being literally dragged out of their homes and thrown into prison. We find that people, because they have faith in Christ, have been imprisoned by the Roman government and displaced from their homes, scattered about the empire. But we also see these same women and men committed to Christ and experiencing the joy of fellowship and also the suffering because of their faith. These same women and men are not letting suffering become an obstacle in life. But rather, suffering becomes an opportunity for them to witness 
to Jesus in every circumstance in life. And we're going to hear more in chapter 12 about how even more persecution and suffering comes upon the church. And I want to first start by simply introducing you to the three main characters in the story today. The three main characters are James, Peter, and Herod Agrippa. Now, James, this is one of the very first disciples that was ever called by Jesus. James is the brother of John. James and John are the sons of a man named Zebedee, and they show up all throughout Scripture. See, James was actually one of the three disciples that throughout the Gospels, the story of the life and teaching of Jesus, James is one of the three disciples who seems to form sort of a core who are closest to Jesus throughout the whole story. And therefore, James is one of the core leaders in the church in Jerusalem at this time. Needless to say, James is a man that all of the Jesus followers in Jerusalem knew very well. He was likely beloved by the church, and he was likely a very close companion to many people in the church as a respected authority. Next, we meet Peter. Peter was not only another one of the 12 disciples and the one who was probably closest to Jesus, even a sort of leader among the disciples, Peter was also a very good friend of James. James and Peter actually were business partners. They had a fishing business that they did together. We see this in the beginning of the Gospels. Peter was often the spokesperson for all of the disciples throughout the Gospels. Go and skim through the Gospels sometime, and you're going to find that Peter is so often the one who speaks first. Sometimes speaking first and receiving praise for his good answers. Sometimes speaking first and then having to remove his foot from his mouth because he said some pretty dumb things. As a leader among the disciples, Peter was also a leader in the church in Jerusalem. Peter was likely the head of the whole church in Jerusalem at this time, around 30 to 40 AD. And then finally we meet Herod Agrippa. This is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who you recall in the beginning of the birth story of Jesus, ordered the murder of all the Hebrew boys under two years old. So Herod the Great was a terrible dude, and his grandson, Herod Agrippa, was cut from the same cloth. Herod Agrippa was charged by Rome to keep peace in all of Israel, and that meant that Herod Agrippa needed to keep good relationships with the Jewish people, because The Jewish people had a lot of influence in Jerusalem and throughout Israel. And so therefore, Herod Agrippa was the one leading this persecution, imprisonment, displacement, execution of the Jesus followers. And it turns out that every time Herod abused the Jesus followers, he got closer to the Jewish ruling class in Jerusalem. So those are our three main characters, James, Peter, and Herod Agrippa. And that brings us now to Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 1. I'd encourage you to grab your own Bible and read along if you have one. It was about that time that King Herod 
arrested some who belonged to the church. Intending to persecute them, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So we find that a few chapters back, Stephen was murdered. Then at the beginning of this story, story, King Herod murders James. And then we find out that James's good friend, fellow disciple, business partner, partner Peter, is also imprisoned by Herod. It's the Passover. This is the high celebration among all of Judaism. And this is when Herod has chosen to put Peter in prison. And it's clear that after Passover ends, Herod intends to take prison out, Peter out, put him on trial, and have him executed as well. It's safe to say that for all of the church in Jerusalem at this time, this was a heavy burden to bear in their lives. This was a complicated and challenging circumstance for them to try to understand and respond to. The story continues. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. The angel struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Get up, quick, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. Go to the next slide. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know, without a doubt, that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. It's really interesting to me because... If you're like me, you read a story like this and you go, oh my gosh, could that really happen? Does that sort of miraculous freedom from from prison actually happen? And if it does happen, why doesn't that sort of thing happen in my life and in our life the way it seemed to happen in their lives at the time? Well, if you ever think thoughts like that, it turns out you're in good company because Peter himself, when it was happening, didn't believe it was happening. Peter thought it was a vision, and it wasn't until long into the whole experience that it finally dawned on Peter. Wait, 
This is actually happening to me right now. And now Peter has to figure out, I've just been miraculously freed from prison, right under the nose of 16 guards and multiple locked doors. What in the world am I supposed to do now? Peter's now a fugitive of the Roman Empire. It's safe to say that he is not in a safe circumstance right now. And so the story continues. When this all had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door! We get yet another example of how the church was praying for Peter. The church was praying that Peter would be released. And yet, when he's actually released, it still catches them off guard for all their belief that God could release them. I read into this text a surprise when they find out God actually did release him. And it turns out that the rest of the people in the house were just as surprised, if not more. Rhoda comes running in saying, Peter's at the door. And here's their response. You're out of your mind, they told her, when she kept insisting that it was so. They said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. It turns out this little phrase, he left for another place, actually nods to something we see in other historical documents of the time. See, for many of the people uh, in the church, the leaders in the church at this time, We hear about them not only in the pages of Scripture, but we also hear about many of these leaders in many other historical documents from the ancient Near East. Except for Peter. We hear very little about Peter from this day for most of the rest of his life. And I think the natural conclusion is because Peter spends the rest of his life from this moment forward in hiding as a fugitive from the Roman Empire, fearful of his life and choosing to wisely live underground and off the radar of the government that was trying to kill him. Turns out, the amazement that the disciples gathered at that time, that Peter himself felt, that amazement and astonishment that led them to say to Rhoda, you're out of your mind, was the same amazement experienced by Herod and the government as well. Story continues. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Now, at this point of the story... We leave off the storyline following Peter, and it continues to tell us a little more about Herod. 
Herod, we've seen, is heavily persecuting the church, is harshly punishing any Roman soldier who doesn't successfully carry out this imprisonment and execution of the Jesus followers. And because of that, Herod ultimately comes to his own demise. He's killed, Scripture says, by an angel of the Lord. And then we get this bizarre detail that Herod's body was eaten by worms. I mean, as though the story wasn't strange enough, James, the beloved leader of the church, executed. Peter, the beloved leader of the church, miraculously rescued. And then Herod, the persecutor of the church, also comes to the end of his life in a strange and kind of gross way. I want to dive into the text and I want to highlight three verses that really jumped out to me. But before I dive in, I just want to make one uh, kind of broad comment. As you know, we're in the middle of this sermon series. Uh, We're going to study through the whole book of Acts. We're going to pause in a couple weeks for Advent and Christmas, but then going into the new year, we're going to come back to the book of Acts and finish the whole thing. Now, when we write these sermon series, I usually gather a group of people around. We all study through the book together. We draw up all sorts of different outlines for a sermon series, and we ultimately land on what's the best way to teach this portion of Scripture. And we land on that by shared process of prayer and study and conversation and discernment. And so then what we do is we just preach faithfully through the text as we believe is the best way to do it. What that means is, when we come to any particular Sunday where some major national events have happened or are happening, the passage we preach through was not chosen to speak particularly towards those events. Rather, we take this posture. We believe that all of God's word, when taught faithfully, when put not just into our heads, but into our hearts, we believe all of God's word is a faithful guide, regardless of our circumstances. And so it is with this week. As you know, on Tuesday is election day. And in the weeks to come, the votes will be tallied and we will discover who the next president of the United States will be. When we chose this passage for this Sunday, we didn't choose it because this was the Sunday before election. Rather, we chose it because we want the Word of God to be central in our lives, not the political circumstances we're in, not the life experiences we're in, but rather the Word of God. Here's why I say that. I'm going to unpack a little more about this scripture, and here's my hope. Even though I didn't choose this specifically for this Sunday, I believe that the experiences of the church thousands of years ago witnessed by the word of God, show us how God's people from generations past made decisions, responded to difficulties, and navigated their way in a challenging, complicated world. And therefore, I believe these stories from God's word can so also for us help us navigate our way through the world in complicated and challenging circumstances. That's my hope for you and for us as we try to get this piece of God's word not just into our heads but also into our hearts. So three things. First, after we find out James was murdered and Peter has been imprisoned, we get this line. The church 
was earnestly praying for Peter. The implication being the church was earnestly praying that Peter would be released from prison. And then, of course, we find out Peter is released from prison. But here's the question that comes to my mind that I bet came to some of your minds as well. Hold on, hold on, hold on. If the church is praying and Peter's released, and if we know that the church is praying all the time, in the beginning of Acts it says the church devoted themselves to prayer. They met daily for prayer. Then we have to assume the church was praying for James too, right? James was just as significant and well-loved and beloved of a leader. So if the church was earnestly praying for Peter and Peter was released, and the church was earnestly praying for James, but James is executed, what's going on? How do we make sense of these contradictory experiences put so close together in the story? Now, this question is actually not unique to this story in Scripture. It actually happens in all of our lives, and I bet you've even experienced this, right? You look over at this part of your life and you go, oh my gosh, God's so good, such a good thing has happened. I saw sickness get healed. I saw loss or brokenness be restored. I saw separation of relationship and people come back together. Over here in our lives, we see God do good and great things. But then at the same time, we look over here in our lives and say, oh, but, but this sickness wasn't healed. But this brokenness wasn't restored. But this strained, strained, strained relationship didn't come back together. And when we see these contradictions, good things happening to both good people and bad people, and bad things happening to both bad people and good people, we wonder, how do we understand or explain this all? You don't have to look far to find people who are willing to give all sorts of different answers. If you've ever shared your hope in God, that he is good and powerful, you might have heard people say, hold on, hold on, look around. You see this world? There's no way there's a good God who oversees this horribly broken world. According to a lot of people, the contradictions we see in life can be easily answered by simply saying, there is no God, or if there is, God certainly isn't good. God simply plays favorites or is fickle and goes about managing the universe however he sees life or sees fit, irrespective of us. One of the answers to the question of the good and the evil we see is that maybe God's not good. Or other people might say, you know what? Maybe God's good, but he's clearly not powerful. He's just not able. God would love to have freed both Peter and James. God would have loved to heal both this person and this person, but no. I guess he just couldn't do it. God must not be all-powerful. Or third, you can hear people say, maybe you've even heard this tragically said in some churches. They say, yeah, 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 the problem is you didn't pray good enough or hard enough or right enough. You know, maybe they would say, well, the church prayed good enough for Peter and that's why he was released, but I guess the church didn't, just didn't pray enough or pray right enough for James, otherwise he would have been healed, or he would have been freed. There's even stories, and I know that some of you have had these experiences, where sickness comes upon yourself or a loved one, and the response is, well, 
If you had enough faith, if you lived your life right and prayed right, then God would heal you. I'll be honest. These three answers that either God isn't good or God isn't powerful or you and I aren't praying enough, to me, these answers are both distasteful and dissatisfying, but they also don't match with what I see in Scripture. And so maybe there's one other possible answer. And in fact, I think Scripture witnesses cover to cover to yet a different answer to the question. And here's the answer. Maybe our prayers and God's will are not the only two factors at work. We see this in stories throughout Scripture, like in the story of Job, where the accuser comes and afflicts Job with many sufferings. We see this in the beginning of the Gospels, where Jesus goes into the wilderness and he is tempted by the Satan. The accuser and the Satan are both the power of evil at work in our world. Sure enough, Jesus himself in the Gospel of John, when he's talking about the Satan, the accuser, the evil in our world, Jesus says Satan is the prince and ruler of this world. Well, if you're the ruler, that means you have some significant power and authority over what's going on. And what that means is we live in a world where sin and evil and death have real power. Is God good and powerful and at work? Yes. Do our prayers matter because God says that our prayers matter? Yes, they're powerful and effective. But are those the only two things at work? No, there is another army fighting in this battle, and that is the army fighting directly against the work of God. An army who wants nothing more than to bring death and destruction and counteract the work of life and redemption that God is working. Maybe you've held on to that hope in your life and shared that hope with other people, and maybe when you share that hope with other people, Maybe their response is just like the response of the disciples when they heard Rhoda say that Peter was at the door. Maybe when you share your hope, you've heard people say to you, you're out of your mind. There's just no way we can look at all this going on in the world and still believe there's a good and powerful God. And, you know, I'll be honest. I can't fully explain how it is that the goodness of God and the effectiveness of prayer and the badness of evil, I can't fully explain how that all works together. I don't get it. It's beyond me. I can't understand it. I can't fully comprehend it. And I would guess that many of you would say you also can't comprehend it. And so maybe we are out of our minds. Maybe Peter is out of his mind. For after Peter was imprisoned and almost executed, he still went on to plant churches, to lead in the church, and to witness to Jesus with his whole life. And so we might go to Peter and we say, Peter, why in the world? Even if you can't understand, even when your best friend James was murdered and you were released, and that's got to just be, I mean, I've got to assume Peter had serious survivor's guilt when he got out of prison, but his best friend didn't. 
Peter, why in the world would you still have hope? Even when the world that we live in is so complicated and broken and messy. Turns out, Peter actually gave us his answer to that question. You know, in the New Testament, we have two different letters that Peter wrote to the church. And he opens his first letter with these lines. This is after Peter has been imprisoned many times. This is after Peter has been a fugitive of the Roman Empire for a long time. Peter writes a letter to the church. And he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoa, 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 Peter. Praise be to the God and Father? Praise God. Peter, why would you praise God when all these terrible things are happening to your friends? When all these terrible things are happening to you? When all these terrible things are happening around you? Peter, I know that you can't explain it all. Why would you still praise God? Well, he goes on. He says, I'll tell you why I still praise God. Because in God's great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through, through what? Through my ability to explain everything around me? Through the fact that if I follow Jesus, only good things happen to me? Through the fact that, uh, uh, you, you know, everything's going to just work out even if I don't know it? Is that what it's through? Is that my hope? What my hope is through? What my life is through? What, what my uh, living hope is through? No, 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 no. None of that, Peter says. Our hope does not depend on our ability to understand or explain the world around us. But rather, we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter would say, I can't explain how all of this suffering in the world around me makes sense, but I can explain why I know that God is good and powerful. That's because I saw Jesus dead and buried. I lost hope, and I figured he'd be dead forever because as far as Peter's concerned, dead people stay dead. But then, three days later, I saw him alive again. And so I know that God is good because he is alive for my benefit and your benefit and our benefit. He has given us life. And I know that God is powerful because God has just raised this Jesus from the dead. Because of that event, the resurrection, Peter says to us, we can know Regardless of our circumstances, we serve a God who is good and powerful. And therefore, because we know God is good, we always have reason to believe there is more going on than meets the eye. I know a lot of us are in circumstances right now. Some of us have personal circumstances of loss or grief or suffering We have the state circumstances of destruction from wildfires also happening around the country. We've got the division and tension around the election coming up on Tuesday. 
around race and policing. And we're all looking at these and different people are understanding it in different ways. And we might look around and go, what in the world is going on? I don't understand it. I can't explain it. But we don't need to be able to explain it. To know that because of the resurrection, there is a good and powerful God who is at work in the midst of it. There's more going on than meets the eye. Sure enough, this is actually how Luke decides to wrap up this whole section, right? Luke tells the story of James's death, Peter's freedom, Herod's gruesome death. And if you're like me, you read it and you go, similar to looking around in my life around me, I go, what in the world is going on in these three crazy and different and contradictory stories? Well, the way Luke ends it is actually very similar to the way Jesus himself often ended teachings. I think Luke is purposefully trying to echo the way that Jesus often taught. Go do this. Go read through some of the parables in the New Testament. Just go Google parables of Jesus. You'll find a bunch of them. Flip open your Bible. If you read the parables, here's how Jesus often taught. He tells a long story, you know, A sower goes to sow some seeds, and it falls on four soils, and it grows this way and that way, and this happens and that happens. Jesus tells a long story, and then after telling a long story, he does not say, okay, let me explain in detail the meaning of this story and give you a 10-minute application at the end of my sermon. He doesn't do that. Rather, Jesus often just ends with a single statement meant to explain why he told this story. Turns out, that's exactly how Luke ends the story he just told about the Jesus followers in Jerusalem, suffering both the tragedy of loss and the hope of miracles and the bizarre twist of rulers who persecuted them coming to their demise. Here's how Luke wraps the whole story up. He says... But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. And that is exactly the more going on than we can always see. See, we look around and we go, I don't understand it. But God says to us, even when you don't understand it, you can know that my word, the new life and the new hope given by Christ is going to spread and flourish. We can know that amidst the good and evils of life, God is advancing his mission. Which means that just like the early Jesus followers, let that become a hope that sustained them through some of the most incomprehensible and challenging experiences imaginable. Just like that hope sustained them, we can have that same hope sustaining us as well. Which means that now, it's your move. Are you going to make that hope what sustains you in your life? I want to tell the story about a member of our congregation who has been doing just that. Um, You may likely have heard uh, Joseph Meyer, longtime member of our church, his wife, 
Jill, longtime uh, supported mission partner, member of our congregation. Um, Joseph Meyer passed away just nine days ago, last Friday, uh, at the end of a particularly brutal and far too fast battle with cancer. I was able to talk to Joseph uh, and Jill just a few days before uh, he passed away. And during the conversation, there was a couple questions I asked him, and, and his answers really stood out to me. Um, first, we were praying together and, and talking about how the church was praying, and Jill was sharing some prayer requests. Uh, and I said, Joseph, uh, how can I pray for you? And Joseph said, uh, my spirit has been very anxious lately so you can pray for me. And as I saw him laying in the bed, his body clearly, visibly kind of withering um, with sickness, he hadn't been out of bed at that point for more than a couple days, I could only imagine the type of anxiousness he had in his spirit. And so we prayed for him. And as the conversation progressed, we started acknowledging the fact that Joseph might well be coming to the end of his physical life as he knows it here on earth. And so I said to him, Joseph, have you thought about your death? Do you have any comfort and confidence or any fear and anxiety when you think about it? And he looked at me and said, yes, both. And then he shared how he'd wondered whether or not if maybe he had lived a better life, God would have spared him from this suffering at the end. And it broke my heart because I know so many people who do that same thing, just like we talked about this morning, so many people who think maybe if I'd been better or done better or prayed better or done something, maybe if I'd been better that this suffering wouldn't have happened. And so we talked just like you and I have been talking right now about how no, 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 no. Your prayers and your life and God's will are not the only two things at work, but it's clear that the brokenness and the disease of cancer is not ever the will of God. It's the work of evil in our broken world. It's what God has come to put an end to, which is what led Joseph to then say, I know, which is why I'm so excited to meet my heavenly father. Joseph was a man that knew what it meant to live in a way that affirmed there is more going on than meets the eye. And then I talked to Jill just a couple days after Joseph passed away. And I said, Jill, how's your heart? And she said, if I'm honest, Carl, I'm a little jealous of Joseph right now because Jill is a woman who lives her life seeing the most brutal suffering imaginable but finding hope that there is in fact more going on than meets the eye. So what about you? Where in your life do you need to pray 
Do you need the reminder? Do you need to cling on to the truth promised to us because of the resurrection? Where in your life do you need to pray, God, let there be more than meets the eye? To that end, would you pray with me now? God, we confess that we do not understand and we cannot explain all that goes on around us. God, we confess that when we look at the challenges and the tensions and the problems and the weighty matters in our world today, they are beyond what words can speak. We lift up to you, God, those who have lost and suffered the destruction of wildfires. We lift up to you, God, the division in churches and in our nation around the election coming up. We lift up to you, God, the ongoing challenge and brokenness across uh, racial lines in relationship. And we say, God, this is beyond what we understand. I'd encourage you now, maybe you even hold your hand up, because I know that in your life personally, there's things going on that are hard and heavy and you can't explain. Maybe just hold your hands out as though holding those burdens up to God. And lifting all these things to you, God, we pray. Let there be more than meets the eye. Remind us that there is more going on than what we can see. And may that living hope sustain us. Amen.